This is Who Wore What When, a podcast where we examine historical figures and their clothes. I'm your host, Maggie Latham, and today's topic is going to be, in celebration of Women's History Month, um, the month of March, the history of the bra. And now, I went into this being like, I'm just going to do a little mini so it'll be like 10 minutes. Um, that's not going to be the case. This is going to be very long, um, because... The history of the bra is actually incredibly interesting, so let's get into it. I would just like to say from the beginning that not all people with breasts are women and not all women are people with breasts, so I'm going to use the term breasts and women and female interchangeably, um, but I'd just like to say that that is not necessarily the case. So here we go. I actually got most of my information today from the Wikipedia article on the history of the bra. And you know, teachers, education professionals can say what they want about Wikipedia. I disagree, I think it's awesome. And there's a lot of information and this article is super interesting. So. If you have any questions about anything that I'm talking about or you want to see some more examples, definitely check out that Wikipedia article. On, it's just called The History of the Bra. It's so cool. And one of the opening lines from it that I kind of fell in love with was, quoting, The history of bras is inextricably intertwined with the social history of the status of women, including the evolution of fashion and changing views of the female body. Words just to live by right there. And extremely true. So let's start at the freaking beginning. Bra-like garments are actually depicted in the art of the Minoan civilization of 14th century BCE. I like to add the E. These depictions are of female athletes. And evidence suggests that even in the Greco-Roman period, women had developed bra-like garments that were used to support the breasts. A garment created to support the breasts may date all the way back to ancient Greece. In fact, in Book 14 of the Iliad, Homer refers to Aphrodite's, quote, embroidered girdle, which in the Greek is kestos himas, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't speak ancient Greek. And he says that this embroidered girdle is being loosed from her breasts. This may be a reference to a decorated breastband or a bandeau instead of a girdle or a belt, which is how it is often interpreted. At least one sculpture of the late Hellenic period shows that Aphrodite is wearing a strophion, meaning a twisted band around her chest, which kind of goes over each shoulder, fastens in the middle or across the middle, and then through the back and crosses at the back. It is unknown whether it was an everyday garment worn by average women or if it was only used in specific situations or for certain women. There's actually very little visual evidence for its existence because most of Grecian sculpture, as I'm sure everyone who exists has seen, and the vase paintings show women in various states of undress with no kind of breastband and... These things often reveal the female's breast shape through draped cloth or clothing or, quote from Wikipedia, even the nipple itself. 
I thought that was funny. Um, with nothing between the chiton, which is a traditional garment for women at the time um, that was pinned at the shoulders and was basically two long pieces of cloth and tied at the waist, and the skin. The strophion is also mentioned in Aristophanes' plays Lysistrata and Women at the Thesmophoria. That is a freaking mouthful for someone who doesn't have a brain. There is more evidence of the Roman version of the strophion called the strophium. Ah, what Romans do best, barely changing the name and function and calling it their own. Ah. It could also be referred to as the fascia, the fasciola, the tena, or the mammiliare. And again, I'm guessing on those pronunciations. Um, preview for this whole episode. I'm not going to do great on the pronunciations. There are some freaking weird ones in here, man. And I, I'm not good at it. Until very recently, there was hardly anything known about any sort of supportive garment with defined cups prior to the corset. But in 2008, which David Henderson, this one's for you, four lace decorated undergarments were found during a renovation project at Langberg Castle in Austria, among 3,000 other textile fragments. All of these were carbon dated back to the 15th century. Two of them had a high neck with fabric stretching above the cups covering the décolletage and were cut below the bust and they were sleeveless. One had broad shoulder straps and possibly a back strap. And the last one is the closest to the modern longline bra, which is a bra that goes a little further down, doesn't just cut off um, under the bust, it goes down a little bit toward the end of the ribcage. It had linen cups sewn together vertically in the middle with another piece of linen cut at the rib cage and a row of eyelet fasteners on the front left side. So, very interesting. And anyone who took costume history with David Henderson probably remembers that if they were paying any sort of attention. It is unknown if these were widespread, but there is evidence, both artistic and literary, that they may have been fairly common. King Philip the Fair of France's surgeon, Henri de Monville, I'm guessing, because it's French, and Conrad Stolle mention these in their writings um, in 1315 for Henri de Monville and 1480 for Conrad Stolle. Um, they mention breast bags or shirts with bags for women to contain their breasts. Um, Stolle calls them indecent, so thanks, bro. An anonymous writer in, the, in 15th century Germany discusses how many women would make and wear the garments. Says of one woman, quote, All the young men that look at her can see her beautiful breasts. Wow. It's like catcalling. But literary. Great. You love to see it. All right. The moment you've all been waiting for. Let's talk about the corset. The inventor is unknown, but the introduction to France is credited to Queen Catherine de Medici, who married King Henry II in 1533. The earliest extant corset dates from the early 16th century and belonged to, oh my god, this name, Falsgrafen Dorothea Sabine von Neuburg. I'm sorry, Germans. Um, And it was buried with her in... Lauingen, Germany in 1598. 
This corset was made of lightweight ivory silk with linen and enforced with whalebone or reeds, wide casing in the center front designed for a busk made of wood or horn and laced up the back. The evolution from the corset to the bra was actually driven by concerns from health professionals about the, quote, cruel, constraining efforts of the corset, and the feminist clothing reform movement, which declared that women would only be able to participate more greatly in society if they were emancipated from the corset. I do not disagree with that. The three most prominent movements of this feminist clothing reform movement were called the Rational Dress Society, the National Dress Reform Association, and Reform Dress Association. Early bras were very expensive, and only the most educated and wealthy reformers wore them. Obviously, they wanted to be free from the corset, but they didn't want to be... They didn't want their breasts to not be supported, which the corset offered the support, but with other restrictions, and so... um, The purpose of evolving to the bra was to allow for wider range of movement, but also still having the support. And Amelia Bloomer, wonder what she invented, um, who was born in 1818 and died in 1894, said, when you find a burden in belief or apparel, cast it off. She was one of these feminist clothing reformers. No one really knows who actually invented the bra. There were many different patents for different bra-like devices in the 19th century. But the world's oldest push-up bra was discovered in storage at the Science Museum in London. It's from the early 19th century, and it was designed to enhance cleavage. So let's talk about some early bras. Henry S. Lesher in 1859 and Lumen L. Chapman in 1863 both patented different bra-like devices. I'm not going to talk much about them because they're not that interesting. In 1876, dressmaker Olivia Flint was granted four patents for the, quote, true corset or flint waist, which was for larger-breasted women. It was in demand by reformers on hygienic grounds because of concerns about the corset. Her designs actually won a bronze medal at the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanics Association in 1878, a bronze medal at the Cotton Centennial Exposition in Atlanta in 1884 and 1885, and at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. In 1889, Hermione almost spelled like from Harry Potter, but not quite, Cadole of France invents the first modern bra according to Life magazine. It appeared in a corset catalog as a two-piece undergarment that she called the Corselet Gorget and Le Benetre, which means well-being. Sorry, France. I told you that the pronunciations are not going to be good. I know I could look them up, but what am I not doing? that. This garment effectively cut the corset into two pieces, with a lower part being a corset for the waist and the upper part supporting the breasts, and it had straps. Her description reads, quote, designed to sustain the bosom and supported by the shoulders. She patented it and showed it at the Great Exhibition of 1889. The company, which is still family-owned to this day, claims that Hermione freed women by inventing the first bra. She also actually introduced rubber thread or elastic. 
1905, the top half began being sold separately as the Soutine Gorget, which is what bras are still called in France. Again, I'm sorry if that's not how you pronounce it. In 1893, Marie Touquet received a U.S. patent for a device with separate pockets for each breast above a metal supporting plate and shoulder straps fastened with a hook and eye. This was a major precursor to the modern underwire bra, but instead of being under wire, it was under metal supporting plate. Sounds comfy. At the time, many women were sewing their own bras rather than buying factory-made ones. Bras were originally an alternative to the corset for at-home wear or were worn by women who had medical issues from wearing corsets. When the straight-fronted corset became fashionable in the early 20th century, some sort of bra or bust supporter became a necessity for larger-breasted women due to the lack of support and containment from the new style. Early bras were either wraparound bodices or boned close-fitting camisoles worn over the corset to hold the bust in and down against the corset, which provided upward support. Ads at the time stressed bras as healthier and more comfortable than corsets, and they showed garments with shoulder supports in a monobosom style with limited adaptability, and they were geared toward those who prioritized lung function and mobility over appearance. As I would hope we all would, but, you know, obviously not the case. Sigmund Lindauer developed a bra for mass production in 1912 and patented and patented it in 1913 in Stuttgart Bad Cannstatt, Germany. It was mass produced by oh my god. <sighs> Let's try. Mechanisken Trico Twerbere Ludwig Meyer and Company in Boblingen, Germany. I wish you could see what this looks like because this is it's all the letters. So many letters. World War I brought metal shortages, so the corset started to fall out, and most fashionable women were wearing bras by the end of the war, and bras were then adopted by women in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. In 1917, the U.S. War Industries Board asked women to stop buying corsets to free up metal for war production, and apparently, by doing this, they saved 28 thousand tons of metal, enough to build two battleships. That's a lot of underwire. <laughs> Not really underwire because it's for a corset, but still, you get it. The war also changed social attitudes toward women because they entered the workforce. This led the bra from being tucked in backs of women's magazines in the 1980s to being prominently featured by big department stores by 1918. In 1910, Mary Phelps Jacob, known later in life as Carice Crosby, don't ask me why, a 19-year-old large-breasted New York socialite, as Wikipedia describes her, purchased a sheer evening gown for a debutante ball, but the only acceptable undergarment for this was a whalebone corset which poked out around the neckline and under the sheer fabric, which she didn't like. She and her maid fashioned a sort of backless bra with two silk handkerchiefs sewn together with pink ribbon and cord. This actually drew immediate attention, and she soon realized when people started asking her where she got it um, that it could be a pretty viable business. 
Um, and on November 3rd, 1914, Crosby got a patent for the backless bra, a device that was, quote, lightweight, soft, comfortable to wear, and naturally separated the breasts, unlike the corset, which was heavy, stiff, uncomfortable, and had the effect of creating a monobosom. Or as we call it today, uniboob. She got a few orders from department stores after she patented it, but business never really took off. Her husband, Harry Crosby, discouraged her from pursuing the business and persuaded her to close it. Oh my god, men. Hey, women. Don't listen to them when they say that. Keep pursuing it. Keep pursuing your backless bra. Um, she ended up selling the bra patent to the Warner Brothers Corset Company for $1,500, which is equivalent to $22,912 today, which sounds like a good amount of money, but just you wait. It wasn't hugely popular, and eventually the bra was discontinued, but Warner Brothers Corset Company earned more than $15 million from the bra patent over the next 30 years. Harry... Crosby, you suck. You cost her so much cash money. This is why men should have no say in what women wear. Just saying. Women's History Month. Following World War I, the change in female status led to the boyish silhouette, which had little bust definition, and it was the flapper era of the 1920s. Women adopted a more androgynous figure that downplayed their curves by wearing a bandeau bra to flatten the breasts, which was super easy for small-busted women, but really hard for those with larger busts. Some larger-breasted women tried products like the Symington Side Lacer that was laced at the sides and helped to flatten women's chest. Most bras at the time were also basically camisoles. In 1922, Ida Rosenthal, a Russian immigrant, and seamstress at Enid Frocks, a small New York City dress shop, changed the look of women's fashion when she and her husband William Rosenthal and the shop owner Enid Bissett noticed that a bra that fit one woman did not fit another woman with the same breast size. They started a new business developing bras for all ages that were designed to make their, their dresses look better on the wearer by increasing the shaping of the bandeau bra to enhance and support the breasts. They called the company Maiden Form, which was in direct contrast to their main competitor, Boyish Form, which is a little, ha <laughs> ha, gotcha. In 1927, the president of the Maiden Form company, William Rosenthal, filed patents for a nursing bra, a full-figured bra, and even a seamed uplift bra. These changes coincided with health professionals linking breast care and comfort to motherhood and lactation and advising against the flattening of the chest. Which is true. Be careful what you do. It can be very unhealthy for you to bind your chest. Just saying, I understand that sometimes your body doesn't look the way that you feel it should, but please be safe and careful with your breasts. Thank you. That's my song of the day. In the 1930s, the term brassiere, which is what they were called at the time, was eventually shortened to bra. And in October 1932, S.H. Camp and Company decided to correlate the size and pendulousness, what a word, of a woman's breasts to letters of the alphabet in sizes A through D, and many other companies decided to follow suit. 
Adjustable bands were introduced in the 1930s using multiple eye and hook positions, and bras became a huge industry in the 1930s, and women became more common in retail work to help clients find the right garment, which changed the role of young women in society because these jobs were typically geared geared toward the younger females. This also came with many improvements in fiber technology, fabrics, colors, patterns, and options came about at this time, including the use of elastic, adjustable straps, sized cups, and even padded bras for smaller-breasted women. In the 1930s, the pointy bust became the preferred silhouette, um, which increased demand for a forming garment. In the 1940s, this became the highly structured and conically pointed bra called the torpedo or bullet bra. Ah, wartime. World War II also had a major impact on clothing, and the specialized plastic safety bras, spelled S, capital S, capital A, capital F, dash, capital T, dash, capital B, capital R, capital A, safety bra, um, I just think that's so funny, were actually designed to protect women on the factory floor, at least to protect their breasts. No one cares about the rest of them. Protect the boobies, but nothing else. Oy, oy, oy. Um, Women were enlisted in low-ranking military positions and were given a uniform to wear, including uniform underwear, which also included bras. Cool. Advertising at the time appealed to patriotism and the idea that bras and girdles were for protection instead of looking and all that good stuff. Dress codes begin to appear, um, unfortunately. Dress codes suck. An example of this was that Lockheed told their workers that bras must be worn because of, quote, good taste, anatomical support, and morale. (laughs) Gotta have that boob morale. At this time, there was also the introduction of the sweater girl, who was a busty and wholesome girl-next-door type, whose tight-fitting outer garments enhanced her curves. In the, the movie The Outlaw, a bra was constructed for Jane Russell by producer and airplane designer Howard Hughes called the Cantilever Bra, which was based on principles of bridge building to fit and support her breasts. Um, this actually caused quite a stir, and a lot of folks really wanted them. The baby boom in the 1950s created demand for maternity and nursing bras. Thanks, baby boomers. You did one thing, right? Um, The introduction of TV also created more advertising opportunities and bras for preteen girls, training bras and such, were marketed during the 1950s. In the 1960s, there was an increased interest in quality and fashion, including a new respectability for maternity and mastectomy bras, Yay! Washing machines became popular and increased the need for durability of the bra. In October of 1964, Rudy Gernreich created a, quote, no bra, which was a soft cup, lightweight, seamless sheer bra in sizes 32 through 36 A and B cups, which initiated a trend toward more natural shapes. He also created a plunge front and a backless version of this. My legs falling asleep. In 1964, Louise Poirier creates the Wonder Bra for Canadel. I'm calling it Canadel, which was a Canadian lingerie company. 
The Wonder Bra has 54 design elements that lift and support the bust line while creating a deep plunge and push together effect. The first year sales of the Wonder Bra were estimated at 120 million. It became quite apparent in the 1970s that there was a need for an athletic garment for women's breasts. Oh my god, can you imagine just like, even just trying to go for a freaking walk? Can't even imagine a jog. In 1977, Lisa Lindahl, Polly Smith, and Hinda May invented the first sports bra, which they called a jog bra, which they invented in the costume shop of the Royal Tyler Theater at the University of Vermont. Now, jumping forward to the 1990s, advertising was refocused on fashion over function. Rather than emphasizing support and foundation, um, Companies sold lingerie that emphasized fashion while sacrificing basic fit and function. An example of this is itchy lace that covers like a soft um, padding layer and things like that. You know, lingerie. Lingerie. Can we talk about how lingerie is the most stupidly spelled word? I get that it's like French or whatever, but like, come on. Sorry. Sidebar. And in the 2000s, there became a higher demand for minimal bras that allow for plunging necklines, but at the same time, the average body mass and bust size is actually increasing. The biggest design change at the time came from the molded one-piece seamless bra cup that was heat molded around round forms of synthetic fibers or foam that keeps its rounded shape instead of having a seam up the middle. At this time, floral and pattern prints also became more popular. You know, Victoria's Secret, pink, all that crap. And in the late 2010s, bralettes and soft bras became more popular. Some have attributed this to a new focus on the athletic body, health, and well-being rather than focus on the male gaze. And there's also uh, a suggestion that this may have a large connection to the Me Too movement um, and wanting to live your life more for yourself as a woman than for men, um, which I think is dope. And due to the global pandemic in 2020, bralettes and more comfortable at-home bras have risen immensely in popularity. Can't imagine why. And that's basically the history of the bra. If you want to hear a little bit about the feminist movement and the quote-unquote burning of bras um, and how factually true or untrue that may be, you can um, help us out on Patreon and then you'll get access to those extra episodes. This episode of Who, Wore What, When was researched and written by me, Maggie Latham. It was edited by me, Maggie Latham, and produced by Dabney Rao. This episode was sponsored by those iHeart Boobies bracelets from the, like, late 2000s, my weird bathroom office setup, and avoiding the male gaze. As I said, the research for this episode came from Wikipedia. 
check out that article on the history of the bra. It's very, very interesting. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Did you know that making podcasts costs money? It sure does, but there is a way that you can help by going to patreon.com and searching who wore what when, or by clicking the link in the description, you can help us break even. For $1 per month, you can get access to some of our research materials, and for $5 per month, only $5 per month, you get access to bonus episodes, which I swear I am making. I'm trying so hard. I'm so sorry. Thanks to all of our patrons for making the production of this show possible. Did you enjoy this episode? Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever the heck you're listening to this. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us too, that really helps our numbers. Only five stars. Come on, folks. Tell your friends to listen. Tell the bird that's obnoxiously chirping outside your window to listen. Who knows? You know. And check us out on Instagram at who wore what when pod or at our website www.whowarewhatwhenpod.com. Thanks for listening. I wish that it could be seen where I'm sitting to do this right now because I'm literally in my bathroom. Sometimes I wish this was a YouTube channel because I'm sitting in my bathroom on the toilet with the microphone on the like shelf next to my toilet and my pants are up. I'm not going to the bathroom, but oh, it's hilarious to look at.